The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Welcome once again to Join Heirs. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. We are on a journey through this book, uh, not touching every section of it, but getting low, digging deep into some uh, messianic, that is, uh, promises that are focused on the Messiah, on the coming one. I've titled it Celebrating the Servant Savior. We're moving into the part of the book where servant is dominant. That's the key title that's going to be used of the figure that we know of as Jesus. But then the secondary title that I've given it is the Gospel of Isaiah. Now we use that uh, term for just the general idea that God did something great through Jesus. But that term finds its basis in this book. Isaiah was the first one to use the term gospel or good news for the declaration that the reigning God saves and satisfies believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That is, through the anointed one's life, death, and resurrection, God saves and satisfies believing sinners, the reigning God. Isaiah was the first one to to use the term gospel to apply to that. And all the uses in the New Testament of good news, I believe, derive that the reason they choose that word is because of Isaiah's use, and Isaiah 40 is the first place it shows up. So my secondary title is based on principally three texts. The term gospel shows up four times in Isaiah, but three key texts that unpack the nature of the good news, and today we get to look at the first one. Now, here is my synthesis of where we're headed today. We're going to hear a voice. For Handel, it's the tenor solo. We're going to hear a voice crying out, calling hearers to bring comfort to the city of Jerusalem. Comfort Jerusalem, calling the hearers to prepare the way of the Lord by readying their own way, and then calling hearers to declare good news, that is gospel, good news in the Lord alone. Now, the last section that we were in was chapters 13 to 25, sorry, to 27, and we focused in on chapters 24, 25, 26, and 27, and especially on 24 and 25. So what we should be seeing so far is that Isaiah has set up his book with a number of cycles where he's he's as if walking walking around the prism of God's glory, his portrait of the future, and, and viewing it from numerous angles. But he's retelling the story over and over again. So, 
And he, and he retells it with images of Isaiah's contemporary situation and of the future. So he sees rampant sin in his present day, rampant sin that will continue into the future. And then the key obstacles or challenges in the present day are the nation of Assyria and in the generation to follow, Babylon. And God's intrusion into Isaiah's present, overcoming Assyria, overcoming Babylon after he uses them for judgment on Israel, that anticipates his ultimate destruction of evil through his Messiah. And so Isaiah, he's able to move back and forth between his present situation of sin and the future situation of sin and the destruction that God's about to bring and then the future destruction that he's going to bring. He's able to move back and forth as if it's one big picture in his mind. We... After the introduction, we were in chapters 2 through 5. We focused specifically on chapter 2. It opened with an image of the nations journeying to Mount Zion in the latter days. This, this mass, mass intrusion of the nations to a city that has now been transformed, exalted over all, where God is reigning and where God's word, His law, is going forth, and where peace is being established. When we got to chapter 6, Isaiah's commission, we saw the declaration, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth will be full of His glory. So what Isaiah sees is, is the Lord seated on the throne in the ultimate heavenly Jerusalem. So that there's actually a cloak, a robe that's, that's working its way through his palace, flowing out from his throne. He sees a person seated on the throne, which suggests he's not seeing the earthly picture of the temple, but he's seeing the heavenly reality that the earthly picture is modeled after. He's actually catching a glimpse of the ultimate Jerusalem where God is seated, Mount Zion in glory, and the testimony is, I intend to make on earth, I, I intend to bring what is in heaven to earth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord seated in His throne. I intend to let the whole earth be filled with my glory. But all of Isaiah's peers and Isaiah himself are people of unclean lips. And therefore, as in the days of the Canaanites, God is going to have to do a house cleaning on a major scale in order to make the earth a place where he can dwell, not just pictorially, but ultimately. So we move through messages of an Assyrian crisis to a child who would be born, who would be named, born from a virgin, named Emmanuel, who the government would be upon his shoulders. He'd have the name Emmanuel, and then he'd have four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's his name. And he would, through his ministry, bring about 
what we see is a second exodus, a second time God would gather His people, but it wouldn't just include Israelites being gathered from Egypt. No, they'd be being gathered from all over the world. And not only them, this Messiah would be lifted up as a signal to the nations and they would be part of this Exodus movement. Then we come to chapters 13 through 27. There are six foreign nation oracles. Judgment on Edom, judgment on the Philistia, judgment on Egypt. Judgment, judgment, judgment. And it culminates in chapter 4, which we camped on 24 and 25. This this vision of global judgment because all the world has rebelled against the covenant with God. An everlasting covenant they have broken. And because of that, curse will fill the entire world. Kings of earth that rebel against God and spiritual beings, ultimately led by the serpent himself, will be held captive for a time and then let out and brought to to an ultimate end. Death will be no more. There will be a feast and everlasting glory in life. That was chapter 25. 27 ended the unit in this way, echoing the second exodus. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were in the law who were lost in the land of Assyria those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem it's the same image that we saw in Isaiah chapter 2 now at that a new unit begins chapters 28 through 37 and we're picking up today in chapter 40 but in this unit The mention of Assyria and Egypt and Israel at the end of chapter 27 sets the stage for this immediate crisis and future crisis to be retold. And you begin to walk through, and there are six woes. You don't read woe except in one instant, but you do read ah, ah. And you see it in chapter 28, the first woe. And woe is a prophetic term that that instills great grief. He's expressing that that judgment is coming, and it's it's just an expression of of, uh, deep sadness on the part of the prophet. Woe, woe, deep lament. And you see that word woe show up in 28.1, in 29.1, in 29.15, in 30 30 verse 1, in 31 verse 1, And then finally in 33 verse 1, six times, whoa, 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 in parallel to the six nations that were declared judgment against in chapters 13 through 23. Six laments from the prophet, and in the process, we see him declare a few things. 31 verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. Do not look, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. 
In Isaiah's day, there was a great challenge. The challenge was this. Assyria had come down from the north and destroyed Israel. Samaria was devastated. And all of a sudden, what happens is Jerusalem freaks out and they create an alliance with Assyria. They begin paying taxes to Assyria. So Assyria has kindly passed by and done nothing to Judah. Assyria has moved down and begun to battle against Egypt. But now, in the days of Hezekiah, when Isaiah is ministering, Judah is toying with the idea of pulling out, of of turning away from Assyria and making an alliance with Egypt. Well, God has said, trust me. Don't look to nations that are strong. Trust me. And God declares in chapter 31, the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. He shall flee from the sword. His young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. His officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. The image is this, and In chapters 36 and 37, we're going to get the story. There's very few narrative stories in Isaiah, mostly sermons. But in chapter 36, at the culmination of these six woes, he goes and he tells the story for the reader that God has been faithful to destroy Assyria. What happens is that Assyria wipes out Egypt... And on the return, they begin to camp out at the borders of Judah. They send in the Rav Shaka to Hezekiah. And he says, who are you to think that your God Yahweh is going to deliver you? None of the gods of the nations have been able to stand against Assyria. The people freak out. Hezekiah freaks out. And he goes and he prays. Then a letter comes. He lays the letter out before the Lord in the temple. And he pleads with God. And Isaiah the prophet brings back word, Because you've prayed, I will overcome Assyria. And in a single night, as you recall, 185,000 warriors of Assyria are destroyed by the angel of death. The same power that devastated the Egyptians devastates the Assyrians. And Sennacherib, king of Assyria, heads back north with his tail between his legs. And then, as God predicts, is killed in the night. Well, this section leading up to the comfort comfort passage that we're about to look at is designed to, to help Israel say, don't look for comfort anywhere else other than the Lord. And in Isaiah's day... The key realm they needed comfort from was Assyria. And Isaiah says God's going to take care of Assyria. And he will ultimately also send even a greater deliverer, whom he does not yet name. But he calls him the king. And he says that this king will have many sons, whom he calls princes. This king 
who will reign on behalf of the Lord. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, chapter 32, 1. Princes will rule in justice. The Spirit will be poured out upon us on high, and the wilderness will become a fruitful field. You will behold the king in his beauty, and every eye will see the glory of the Lord. So there's a movement here. He predicts the serious fall, and when it happens, this is how prophecy works in the Old Testament, when the immediate prophecy is fulfilled, it gives hope to the reader that the greater, more future messianic prophecies will ultimately be fulfilled. So don't lose heart. Keep trusting. Now, after the story of after the story of God's victory for Hezekiah, we get another story that Hezekiah gets sick. He pleads with God. God says, okay, I'll heal you. I'll add 15 more years to your life because you prayed. But while he's sick, a band of terrorists show up in Jerusalem. They weren't terrorists to, from the perspective of Hezekiah. They were only terrorists to the perspective of Assyria. It was the Babylonians. They were nighttime raiders that kept giving problems to the Assyrians. And they show up. Hezekiah is standing against Assyria. And this rising power of Babylon takes their opportunity to come into Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, in his foolishness, shows them all the riches of his palace and all the riches of the temple. Isaiah calls him a fool and declares that when Assyria goes down, Babylon will rise in power and they will bring an end to Judah. This is what we read at the end of chapter 39. Go there just, just before chapter 40. This sets our context. Verse 5, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that you've shown to these Babylonians... That which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons will come from you, whom you will father. They shall be taken away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now this is sad, what the father says. Hezekiah says to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, well, there will at least be peace and security in my days. All this will happen after his death. What this does for the reader is to say the ultimate hope that Isaiah is promising has not come yet. Even the king himself in Judah is not who we're longing for. He doesn't even care about the future welfare of his own children. As long as in his life things are fine. And the declaration is, Babylon is on, is on its way. It is rising to power, and in God's time, judgment will come. Complete destruction will come. Now into that, all of a sudden, now shines a voice of hope, shooting from the future into Isaiah's present, 
but focused on ultimate realities. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. This is the ultimate hope of the book, reconciliation with God. To that end, let's pray. Father, I ask that you now would open up your word to us. I feel like there is good news that you would have us hear. Help us leave today celebrating increasingly what you did on Resurrection Sunday on our behalf and on behalf of all your elect, all those who will put their trust in you. And may it work in us deep-seated comfort and joy that you have acted in spite of us. Through Jesus I pray, amen. Verses 1 and 2, the first voice. A voice calls to many. The words are plural. Comfort, comfort. Those are plural imperatives. Comfort my people. So the, 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 the sense is that there, there are a number of people that are in this day going to hear the words of Isaiah the prophet, and be moved to mission. A mission of proclamation of hope. Comfort people who've been in desperation, who've been in fear, who've been in anxiety, who've been filling their beds with tears. Bring comfort to them. Bring comfort to Jerusalem. So there's a, a, uni a union here between my people and Jerusalem. Now it's, it's Jerusalem that in chapter 2 is elevated over all. That the nations gather to. This is the place where God's presence resides. And God's calling for comfort. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her three things. That a period of service or of tension has ended, that iniquity has been pardoned, and that she's received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. So let's just consider each of these. The word the ESV renders warfare. That's certainly a term, a, a way that it could be rendered. Um, in the backdrop, it would have to be something related to the exile, the tensions they've been experiencing. They've been under enemy rule, under servitude. And so warfare may be the right, the right language. A period of service for exiles, that, that's, that would be a, a legitimate expression as well. And the point is that this period of exile, of curse, under the judgment of God, has, has come to a completion. That her iniquity is pardoned. Now, within the book of Isaiah, this is something that is going to be focused in specifically on the servant, Savior. 
Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah's audience doesn't have ears to hear from the Lord, and he has no ears to hear their cries. And everything is based on their iniquities. It's created a distance. That's what sin does. It separates us from the living God. And and the, the pain is that all of us are born. Indeed, we're conceived outside the Garden of Eden. We are already separated from the living God. The sin of Adam has created an alien guilt so that now sin infects and affects everything about us. Even before we act, we are already guilty in Adam. And then our disposition... Because the Spirit of God is not working on our hearts, the only thing creating desires in our heart is the flesh. And those who carry out the desires of the flesh will die. And that's where we all are. And yet the word here is that that iniquity that had separated the people from the living God is now being overcome. And elsewhere in the book... Everything hinges on the person who was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that that brought us peace with God was upon Him. By His stripes we are healed. The Lord was pleased to crush Him, to put Him to grief. If He would but become a guilt offering for sin then he would see his offspring. He would be satisfied. Indeed, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, aware of all that he was doing as he entered in to be the guilt offering at the cross, to bear our sin, the righteous one, with full knowledge of that, would be able to account many who were unrighteous, righteous as he bears our iniquities. That's the term that we have here. Jason, if I understood you right, um, when you spoke of verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, you said that it's um, essentially word to other prophets to speak comfort to Jerusalem. It's not God saying to them comfort, I'm comforting you. It's saying to other prophets essentially, speak comfort. Did I understand it right? And I'm asking that because it sounds like 59.2 says, because of this distance, I'm not even speaking to you directly. I don't know if that's a wrong understanding. I'm just curious whether I picked up or didn't pick up. Even as you talk, I'm sitting here pondering. In the Hebrew text... um, (laughs) So, the... This little word, my, my people, it's one word in Hebrew. I've been reading it as a direct object. So, God calling for others to comfort his people. But it's possible that it's actually what we would call in English grammar evocative. This is who he's talking to. Comfort, and, and he's declaring it. Um, Rather than, rather than work comfort or declare comfort, it would be be comforted. 
but the voice changes right away when he then says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, which supports your original thought. Yeah, so we have another plural. So, so the... I mean, this is plural. Comfort my people. This is plural. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And... That's why originally I had paralleled my people and to Jerusalem. Comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, that, that they were being treated as one. It's possible, though, grammatically, that this could be be comforted, although it's, it's not passive. Experience comfort, it could be like that. My people, says your God. Your God will say, and then speak unto the heart of Jerusalem and call to her that this servitude or warfare is complete, has been completed. Um, it's so my initial inkling is that we're looking at that this is parallel. My people in Jerusalem is parallel. Um, Chris Tachik, any ideas? Um, to add only more muddy waters to muddy waters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the plural isn't clearly who that is. You know, who's to be, who's the, who's the comforting? Um, yes, it could be the people, but I mean, it could be some unidentified. like a whole bunch of saved Gentiles from Ethiopia, Ethiopia, calling, (laughs) comforting my people. One thing about the text that we're in right now is that it is very uh, Jewish-centered, ethnic Israelite-centered. And yet so much of the rest of the book has included the nations. And so that could be a possibility. Well, who's he calling to proclaim comfort to these Jews, when he shows up as bringing good news as the reigning God, ultimately through his servant king. And um, there's not enough in this text, but elsewhere we see that the Gentiles do perform that instrumental role. It's plural, right. In my mind, he is capturing a message for the future that's beyond his own lifetime. Because the good news does not go operative until the Christ King shows up. There was a hand. Paul. Um, first off, prophetic intentional vagueness to, uh, you know, yep. a, a corporate law. Number two, I, I'm hearing the Apostle Paul in a specific situation talking about with the comfort. You have been comforted, you can comfort others in, certain, in that situation. But the idea is, Good. That's good. Was there another hand? Yes. So it's almost like there is something, but now a righteousness of God apart from the law has been manifested. Yes. Reaching forward because there's, if you go through the law, they deserve nothing but wrath at this point. Uh huh. So where's the comfort? That's right. This comfort is coming 
Um, the rest of the book is going to pinpoint it on this Isaiah 53 event. But it is fully separate from the law. And we're going to see, and this is going to be so fun and exciting, to just walk through the portrait of the, serp- the servant in this part of the book and see the servant, the person, contrasted with the servant singular of the nation. The servant, the nation, is filled with wickedness and law-breaking, and the servant, the person, is unblemished, portrayed as guiltless, never having a lie on his lips, and he is the one who will work on behalf of the nation, and not only on behalf of the nation, but for the sake of the rest of the world. So, there is... is, um, Naturally, you're absolutely right. When we see God forgiving sin, pardoning iniquity, we have to say, on what basis can a just God justly do such a thing when sinners are the ones who are being pardoned? And if we simply fall back on the blood of bulls and goats, we have to recognize that ultimately wasn't enough and Israel knew it. And God has already said in Isaiah chapter 1, all of your blood of bulls and goats I do not desire. I am not pleased with all of your offerings. But then he reuses that word, that word for pleased. I'm not pleased in Isaiah 1 with your sacrifices, but in Isaiah 53.10, he is pleased to crush his son who will become a guilt offering. So the, that contrast of where the law has taken them is to death. And now they're experiencing life, and you and I have to ask ourselves, how can God justly do that? And ultimately, the answer is going to come through His Son. So, we're not sure who is being called upon to proclaim the comfort, but it's a group. And I'm prone to not treat my people as the audience, uh, but as the recipients. Not the audience of who's supposed to proclaim the comfort, but the recipients of the comfort in parallel to Jerusalem. This is the ultimate answer in the book to how God can pardon the iniquities. It's through His servant Savior. And I call Him the servant because that's what He's tagged right here. My servant is the righteous one who is able to account many righteous. And significantly, in Isaiah 53, it's not simply the ethnic Israelites whom Isaiah is including in our transgressions. I believe he's also, and I'll argue this when we get there, also including the nations. He's already envisioning a global restoration here. And many in his audience, his original audience, wouldn't have been included among the hour. So it's a, it's a small group that he anticipates building and it will include the nations. That's where what I'm going to ar- be arguing. Now, this last statement is a little bit tricky. She, namely Jerusalem, has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. What does that sound like? Initial interpretation. You've been overpunished. Sorry about that. You've been overpunished. How many had that view of the verse? I did. I don't think that's actually what it's saying. The word here for double, I think what's going on here is you've been 
punished the double with respect to your sins. Meaning that there is a copy. There's the sin and there's the punishment and the two fit perfectly. That the double is is that sense of there's um, a perfect reflection of the sin to the punishment. It matches completely. So that the point is not that they've been overpunished, but that they have been punished in exact accordance with their sin. That's the doubleness. A perfect alignment. At least that's how most commentators take it. And as I've looked at a number of other texts, it seems as though that's, that is the sense. That this is the, a, a way of talking of your penalty directly fits the crime. And it's been exact. And now, we have a God who can justly forgive our sins when we confess them. Because every one of them, every bit of them, have been completely addressed. He he will never be able to come back and say, oh, I forgot one. You've got to go. You're out. No, it's been complete equality. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And somehow, all of the nations... Increasing, expanding sins have all been addressed perfectly. There is a... Uh, this tells you a little bit about Deroshi. There's a Shy Lin album. Shy Lin is a hip-hop, Christian hip-hop singer who has unbelievable poetry. Um, some of the best musical Christian theology that I have ever encountered is in Shailin songs. So he has this album called The Attributes of God. And uh, so it's, it's hip-hop. And in it, he unpacks that all the world's sins were addressed in Christ's three hours on the cross. Ponder that. Eternities in hell. Eternity is what it would take to actually satisfy the wrath of God. Unstopping burning and being eaten and devastation for eternity is what our sin against the the elevated, exalted God demands. And yet all of it was able to be satisfied in three hours on the cross. It, it, it gives us a glimpse of how low Christ came. For Him to go to the cross and for it to actually satisfy the wrath of God that is equivalent to eternity in hell. That in those moments, He could experience all the fires of God's wrath against all of humanity for all time, all of the elect. And that it satisfies the wrath of God. It gives us a glimpse of of the, the excruciation of being one who did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited, but took upon himself the role of the servant, humbling himself, becoming a man, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And that it actually is, is taken, all of it, upon him at that cross while he's looking at us. All the fires of God sitting on his back and he's just looking at us saying, I forgive you. It's beautiful. If you've seen, in my mind right here, I'm envisioning the Chris Powers picture. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, online, he goes by Action Jones. But he was one of our Bethlehem College and Seminary students and he has a business now called Full of Eyes. He's an amazing artist, and he often puts music or poetry to his art. But he has an image of Christ on the cross with his arms out like this, all the fire of God's wrath pouring down on his back, and he's just looking down at a single individual declaring, you are mine, forgiven. And all that fire is being withheld. Steve? struggling to understand um, the past tense, past tense, she has received um, a complete... Yes. Because, you know, wouldn't their just punishment would be eternal punishment, and yet it's spoken of in the past tense, and yet Christ hasn't yet... So can you... Yeah, this, we've already seen it in Isaiah chapter 11. It portrayed even though in the ESV it translated it, the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Very literally, it was the whole earth has become full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it's portraying the period when the Messiah would come. So in his mind, it's as if he's being, Isaiah the prophet is being transported. He's called a seer. He is seeing things in the future as if they've already been accomplished. He's getting a glimpse of the cross in past tense. And it's from that event that he can talk this way it, as best, that, that's how I'm understanding it. Because in his book, the iniquities are going to be put specifically in the Isaiah 53 context. This is where the iniquities are addressed. So it's, in Isaiah 40, we're getting a shot into the future that is not true for Isaiah's day, but it is true for us, wherein we can now rest and be able to say, yes, all our iniquities have been, past tense, addressed. It comes where he's speaking tenderly. He's saying the warfare is ended. Your iniquities are pardoned. And now you've received double for all your sins. I always thought that might mean the blessing of the um, redemption of Christ is, it's, it's, that's what's double, is sort of this blessing redemption thing, not, not the sin itself, not the punishment for sin, but I don't know that I could support that. I'm just saying that was how I understood it. So you've received double blessing, overcoming... So it's not just that you've been, you were dirty and now you've been made clean. No, you were dirty, you've been made clean, and now you've even been declared a child. So that, that movement up. Um, I hadn't considered the text in that way. Um, I didn't, I mean, I've, I often don't read too many commentators, so somebody may have presented that, but... Um, I can say that some parallel texts 
would suggest, parallel texts in the Old Testament would suggest that um, we're talking about they've been paid in full for the sins that they have done and that it's clean as I was taking that interpretation from the beginning. And I, I'll, I mean, I like that idea. Um, it seems also a biblical concept. Whether the words can stand up to it, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to look some more. So, um, yeah, I would have to ponder that. We know it's, we would, we would declare that that is true. Um, it's not simply our sins have been taken away. That's called passive imputation. We have active imputation where the righteousness of Christ has actually been counted as ours. And both are necessary. And it's that righteousness all of a sudden, I mean, that's, that's far greater than it's countering in increasing measure the depth of the sin that we had so that we can actually stand as purified and perfect children in the sight of God as He looks at us through His Son. The voice, I think it's the same voice, now continues in verse 3. A voice is crying in the wilderness. Now, all of our English translations, when they come to this, they say that it, the voice is crying in the wilderness, that in the wilderness is not part of the quotation. When we get to the New Testament and it takes this text and puts it on John the Baptist. He's crying in the wilderness. That's where he's doing the crying. It's not what he's saying. And the Hebrew text perfectly aligns with that. Even though our ESV didn't follow that, it put in the wilderness as part of the quotation. It's exactly where we would expect a prepositional phrase in the Hebrew text if it was one is crying in the wilderness, giving us the location where he's declaring such things. Now, there's something happening here, I think, because later in Isaiah 64, it says your holy cities have become a wilderness, Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. This is the depiction of what the people are. And into that world of desolation, God begins to sing. Comfort. Make a way for the Lord. God will bring refreshment in the wilderness. This is in part of the passage that we leaped over to get to where we're at. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. How long? Until the Spirit is poured out. Remember, we heard the Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11. It's the Spirit that will rest on the Messiah, on the servant, who, the Spirit-empowered King. The Spirit will now be poured out on all who are identified with Him. A Spirit from on high. And the wilderness will become a fruitful field. Into this wilderness, a voice is declaring comfort. And already in Isaiah 32, we've seen mentioned that, that there's going to be a garden built out of a wilderness. It's like Eden is going to be overcoming all that was once against it. Justice will dwell in the wilderness. 
Righteousness, abide in the fruitful field. Justice and righteousness were the two elements that are tied to the servant king's reign in Isaiah 11. There's hope here in the midst of brokenness. Where you've been oppressed, justice will come. And it's in this day, comfort, the effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. Isaiah 51, now beyond where we're at. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all of her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. That's new creation talk. And that's the period that we're addressing right now. When into the wilderness will come a message of hope and life. Her desert will be like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Chapter 35 ended but just before the narrative of Hezekiah's um, prayer. This is what we read. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of the Lord. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who've been anxious of heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold your God. He will come with vengeance, with recompense. God will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will see. The ears and the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness. Further down, a highway will be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be theirs. Prepare the way of the Lord. This is how Mark opens his gospel. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. That's Malachi chapter 3. This messenger, John the Baptist, will prepare the way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That's straight out of Isaiah 40. John the Baptist appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Hope, help coming. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is second Exodus language. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming. And the messenger goes before the king, trying to prepare the people for his coming. If they don't surrender, they'll die. But they have the opportunity. The terms of peace are being presented. And the way of the Lord is getting readied. A highway shall be there. I just read this one. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. It springs forth like new creation. Do you not perceive it? It will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So where I'm putting this Isaiah 40 text, the language of the highway and the the Lord's way is right in the path of, of the garden imagery, the elevation of the mountain, the journey to see and savor God through His King seated on the throne that we've already seen in Isaiah. That's what it's setting us up to understand this text as. 
and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, and then I translated it, shall be future, full of the glory. Then when the Messiah comes, the earth has become full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 33, your eyes will behold the King in His beauty. Here, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it. It's already started. All sorts of flesh have seen Him. People from every tongue and tribe and nation being gathered to the throne. But the day will come where even those who have not had eyes will see. And rather than being servants and declared children in the house of the Lord, they will become prisoners of war and cast into the second death. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. They shall see the glory of the Lord. Now, i got to pull this together here. Verses 6 through 8. They simply declare for the reader what God's saying will come to pass because His Word stands forever. Flowers fade, people fade, but God's Word is unchanging. And then we come to the declaration in verses 9 and 10. Let's just... Read them together. When it says, get up to a high mountain, it's no longer in the plural, now it's in the singular. And it happens to be feminine because the role of the herald is a, is a post and job descriptions are almost always in feminine. So I think it's the same person who in verse 6, when, when the voice cries, says, cry, that cry there is different than the comfort. The comfort was plural. Cry is singular. And I think we're looking at the same person. Get up on a high mountain, herald of the good news of Zion. That's how I translate it. Herald of the good news related to Zion, rather than seeing Zion as the herald. Lift up your voice with strength, herald of the good news of Jerusalem. The good news that pertains to Jerusalem. Herald, the herald is the one who's supposed to get up. And notice that in both instances, he's a herald of good news. This is our term, the gospel. And it shows up in the context of John the Baptist's proclamation, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It shows up in the context of an intrusion of hope into the darkness when sins will be pardoned and when people will be reconciled with God. Good news. We see it in these two other major instances, and we're going to look, work through both of these texts. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. You need peace today? Good news. You need happiness that's even able to stay stable when your circumstances are broken? Good news. He publishes salvation. A salvation that carries us even through death. 
declaring our God reigns. The reigning God saves and satisfies believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Good news. The mashar and its um, bearing up good news. And we see it a number of times prior to this text. It's, the verb always shows up in the context of the battle's over, good news. Or <clears throat> um, a son is born, good news. It's that intrusion when there's a sense of hopelessness and all of a sudden it gets turned around. It's mostly, mostly in the context of the battle's over and I want to let you know, good news. It's almost, it's almost always in the context of a victory won, but not exclusively. Here's the other text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to bring good news, to herald good news. And we're going to walk through both of those texts after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming good news. It's specifically the good news related to God. It's the time is fulfilled. Isaiah anticipated my day. And now I'm here proclaiming it's time. The kingdom of God is at hand. Back in this text, our God reigns. He reigns ultimately through His Son. And he's bigger than any demon. He can stop the pain when he chooses, or he can, in even often greater displays of power, carry us through that pain with sustained faith. He reigns. All authority in heaven and on earth, now his. Take comfort today. The time is fulfilled. Believe the good news. Don't deny the fact that God is this big through His Son. Believe it, Jesus says. And if you found lack of faith in your own soul, turn from it. Surrender, repent, and believe that the reigning God can save and satisfy believing sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. This, this is the essence Whereas we're going to see this text is directly built off of Isaiah, the singular servant in Isaiah turns into servants after Isaiah 53. The term servant never shows up in the singular after Isaiah 53. It's always in the plural. But prior to Isaiah 53, it never shows up in the plural. It's always in the singular. Something happens in Isaiah 53 where the servant, the man dies and rises again and sees his offspring. Jesus never had a wife, physically. Never had physical kids. His offspring are in this room, and every one of us are there because we're spiritual offspring, adopted into his family. He sees us, and we take on the marching orders of our Redeemer. The servant becomes servants, and Paul is one of them. A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, like Isaiah, 
The good news was promised in Isaiah, Paul says, and it concerned his son. And the message now is this. Just look at what is this good news. Lift it up. Don't fear. Fear not. Strengthen your weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold your God. He will come. He will come to save you. We're going to go here, but um, do you remember when, I, when, when John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you really the one? Jesus tells him, go back. Tell them that the eyes of the blind see, that the ears of the deer have, uh, hear, that the um, lame walk. And then he says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Why would he say that? Because one of the things the Messiah was also to do was free people from prison. Set the captive free. And John the Baptist is in prison. And Jesus didn't free him. Blessed are those who are not offended by the fact that I come in two different ways. First as a suffering servant. Giving glimpses of my power. Even raising... Three people from the dead, but only three. Think of all the people that stayed in the graves. He, he focused his ministry on the, the lost sheep of Israel, and he restricted his disciples. No, don't go to the Gentiles. Think of how many Gentiles remained in their blindness, remained in their deafness. But every experience of a miracle in Jesus' ministry gave us hope that ultimately every eye that is blind will see. Everyone who trusts in Him will be able to hear. Every lame body will be fixed. And every person in prison will be set free. But in the already, we can't always expect that all of the future will come into the present. There is still a not yetness to Christ's reign. And because of that, Because of that, we have sons that die of cancer. And the call of the text is, fear not, repent and believe. Believe that good news is real. Don't let the fact that you're still in prison, John, make you think that I'm not the one. Look at the evidence and trust that what is already, let it give you hope for all that will come in the not yet. Fear not. Lift up. Tell the cities of Judah, behold your God. The Lord comes with might. His arm rules for Him. We're going to see in Isaiah 53, that's a title given to the Christ. He is the arm of the Lord. It rules for him. His reward and recompenses with him. So many things that I could go into here. But just look at the last part. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. And that might be what you need today. Just to know that 
Christ as a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. Gently lead those who are with young. Ezekiel 34 calls the Christ the shepherd, the one shepherd. And then Jesus picks it up in John 10. I am the one shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He uses both titles. And then he says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never, never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. That's the kind of shepherd that we have. The unrelenting shepherd who is there as protector and provider. Comfort. Your sins are forgiven. And you have a shepherd who cares for your soul. And that's what Easter is all about. That is what it is about. Good news. That the reigning God, who is over all, no power on earth can stand against Him, reigns. That reigning God is over all things. He saves and He satisfies. But not everyone. He saves and satisfies believing sinners. God loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes won't perish. But if you don't believe, you perish. But if you do believe, you can receive salvation and you can receive satisfaction. And it all comes through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Um, are you going to go to John Paul? <laughs> Not at the moment. Because I was thinking about verse 9. Um, this being Palm Sunday, Sunday, it seems that there's a good chance that something might be connected in the way John 12 talks about Jesus coming toward Jerusalem. And just briefly say something about that, that when John 12 talks about Jesus, Jesus' entry, he says to, you know, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Uh, your, behold, your, your king comes uh, on a donkey. And yes, Zechariah 9, 9, that's a prophecy there, but probably the do not fear piece and daughter Zion, some of that's probably coming from Isaiah. Good. Brother Chris has an ex exceptional book coming out on John 12 and its Old Testament background. Um, I'll let you know when it arrives in the bookstore. But thank you. Um, Hoshiana. Na means please. Then the command, save. Save, please, O Lord. Straight out of, that's Hosanna. Straight out of Psalm 118. Um, but that, that's really good. Fear not, daughter Zion, it's there. It's good. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are, are the one who has intruded and called good news to us.
We thank you that we are part of that, that we are recipients of a a servant savior who is also a shepherd who rules over all things. In to, to you we look, uh, we pray that you would move us to repentance and help us believe we are weak, but you are strong. So hold us as you have promised as the great shepherd. Don't let us go. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.